Hello, sports movie lovers, and thank you for downloading the 121st episode of Scoring at the Movies. Every other Thursday, we spend some time honoring, mocking, or being meh about motion pictures with athletics in them, and we ladle out tons of spoilers, whether we like the movie or not, or are meh. I'm the touchy-feely phony umpire who faked every orgasm, Enrico Palazzo, a.k.a. Ryan Ellis. And here's the right fielder with murder on his mind who has a nice beaver that he just had stuffed, my funny face, Chris DiGregorio. Well, thanks, Ryan. You know, I just uh, had a nice drive over here with Weird Al Yankovic and was deeply disappointed that the crowd of reporters out front of your place were not here for me. But... Tiny cameo for Weird Al. <laughs> yeah, it's that kind of thing that I love about movies like The Naked Gun. I guess maybe especially at that point in the late 80s, Weird Al was already very famous. He was. It's almost like where Brad Pitt will just randomly show up in a very small part in a movie. And I think Weird Al did it because he loved either the directors or Leslie Nielsen and just wanted to be in the movie. So why not? Mm. Just a throwaway 10 second scene, but it's great. Although I have to admit, one of the biggest laughs, I don't know why I got out of this movie, was from that scene when Leslie Nielsen just straight face walks up to the podium and chastises the reporters about why can't you just let a man feel or, or <laughs> what it's like to be a man or like that whole thing. <laughs> His serious deadpan is the key to these movies. Absolutely. Okay, before we go any further, let's do a few things. First of all, we're both very sober. I've got water. You've got a Coke Zero. Let's open these let's up. Let's do that. All right. The new year. We're, well, a couple days in the new year recording and several weeks in when we post it. I also want to address the whole double joke, the Simpsons-esque double joke with that stuffed beaver. I don't know why this never occurred to me before. But, of course, the joke is, nice beaver, but he's talking about an actual stuffed beaver. Yeah. But then when she says, I just had it stuffed, think about that for a second. Did you never get that double entendre I never really before? got the double entendre. Oh, I think I got that even as a kid. Well, sometimes I'm dumb. <laughs> sometimes I'm extraordinarily dumb. My favorite gag in this movie might be, though, and I did laugh several times, even though I've seen this so many times, so the gags are nowhere near new. Yeah. But I love when he walks into the hospital room, and the doctor has been programmed to kill O.J., and he throws the pillow at Leslie Nielsen, who can't get off his face. I laughed out loud at least five times in this movie, and that was maybe the biggest laugh out loud moment I had. My pitch to you about the whole doing this podcast was, I kind of want to know what it's like to rewatch some of these movies from my childhood. Do I still like them, or do I like them more? And we did shoehorn this into a sports movie podcast mm -hmm. here. Granted, there is a lot of baseball time. About a third of the running time is at yeah. the baseball game. So there isn't that much baseball action, granted, but they're at the baseball park for about 30 minutes. Given that some of the sports movies that were legitimately supposed to be centered around sports that we've done have featured a lot less time around the sport mm -hmm. than this movie, I don't feel so bad about shoehorning it in. Right. I saw it probably in 88 or at the latest 89 on VHS and a couple times over the years since. So it's not new to me by any stretch, but it's probably the first time I've watched it in 15 years at least. And it's both a movie that definitely lived up to my memory of it and my expectations and in some ways actually exceeded it because there were a few jokes that i picked up on just like the beaver double entendre stuff that you mentioned earlier a couple other scenes in this movie where i was like i never noticed that before but that's clever there are a few scenes that 
did not hold up. And I was like, oh, really? That was a joke? Oh, that guy was actually innocent after all. Let me just shove this evidence away again because he was yes. I'm like, ooh, in 2022, 23, that doesn't really... That uh, guy was probably black. That might have played in the late 80s into the 90s, but now it doesn't hold. But I was shocked at how much of this movie did hold up and mm. held up really well. And I suspect very strongly, it's just what you said, it's Leslie Nielsen. His ability to deliver a lot of these jokes purely straight... And the guy that plays Ed, too, whose name I'm going to forget. George Kennedy. He'll deliver utterly ridiculous rejoinders or one-liners, or he'll be the straight man in the mm. gag, and he can just play it purely deadpan, right? And that's not easy when some of these things are just so off-the-wall slapsticky mm. sometimes. Big you got something on the corner of your mouth. You see the hand. Half a banana, up, yeah. Half a banana falls down, and nobody reacts, right? Yeah. It's just like another thing. Happens to him all the time. Yeah. <laughs> that takes skill to pull off. I bet your favorite moment with George Kennedy was when he gets shot with the dart by the Q-esque guy. <laughs> Why? Why? <laughs> the line delivery on that. He does fall, but he's back up within seconds. Yeah. Which I guess suggests that the overweight lady that falls into Reggie Jackson... No, probably not back up in seconds, because she fell at least one story. Yeah. She landed on him, granted, but she's probably badly hurt. I'm very, very badly burned. Yeah, let me demonstrate on Ed real quick. Zap, the look of bewilderment. Why? And that, that is good. He wanted to be an airplane, and he was unhappy they didn't cast him in that because he'd been in airport 10 years earlier, which is a drama. D. Martin's in that. I think Burt Lancaster is. Huge hit. I think it was an Oscar-nominated or even Oscar-winning movie. Kennedy wished he'd been in there. Not original big hit. Let's do the nutshell, because there's a reason why I cut myself off here. So, the naked gun in a nutshell, there are two things. We'll get to the guys who made it in a second. I have two, but the first one's going to be, Reggie almost commits regicide. Yes. Okay, (laughs) I see what you did there. But here's why I bring it up right now, talking about the creators. This will mean a lot to you, not to pretty much I know where you're going to go with this. Zaz! Zaz! Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker, so David and Jerry Zucker, their production company, I believe, I know they call themselves Zaz, yeah. and they started making movies, I think, even before Airplane, but that was a monster hit eight years before this. This certainly succeeded big time, too. The Zaz reference, for those who don't know, is that I think I heard this in The Simpsons or something at one point. We were on vacation with the wives. I was making chicken. It was pretty tasteless, and I said, this needs more Zaz. <laughs> This was a long time ago. You still bring it up to this day. I do. It's your trademark cooking move. So I got to bring it up when we have the Zazz guys involved in this. (laughs) I didn't make the connection until you brought it up just now. Oh, I know where you're going with that. (laughs) That fits. That's beautiful. So Justice for OJ was released going on 35 years ago by Paramount on December 2nd, 1988. So really 34 years ago, but same year at least. The budget wasn't big, but the box office returns were huge. The Rotten Tomatoes numbers are great. 86% of critics liked the film. 7.5 out of 10 was the average. There are 56 reviews on the site and 84% of audiences. Both of the sequels, so Naked Gun 2 and a half, is it? And Naked yep. Gun 33 and a third. Yep. They were in the mid to high 50s, which isn't terrible, but not quite fresh tomatoes. This film is eighth at the 88 U.S. box office. Bull Durham was number 18. And Eight Men Out, which we covered, Bev and I covered Bull Durham many years ago, was 116th. And this movie was nominated for one AFI list. It wasn't the sports category of the top 100 genres. It should have made this list, though, the top 100 laughs. Why is this not on there? It's certainly funnier than a lot of movies that made the list. Airplanes, I think, in their top 10. Fine. Okay, I can live with that. I might even prefer Naked Gun to Airplane, but it's not even in the top 100. That is absurd. I love Airplane 2. No, I love Airplane. Also. (laughs) Not the sequel. I agree with you. I think this movie is as deserving, if not more, than Airplane is to be on that list. We've talked so many times about these AFI lists and movies that are on there that are inexplicable or movies that are nominated for a list and don't make it like this for the laughs. Come on. Especially given the critical numbers you already cited from Rotten Mm -hmm. Tomatoes. 
this is a well thought of movie in its time. And I think even in retrospect, if you're doing a list like the AFI list, you can't argue the influence that this movie had. I think you could probably point to Airplane as being the movie that really influenced a lot of these really slapsticky satires for decades to come. But I would argue that it was this movie, The Naked Gun, that took the Airplane model and popularized it to the degree where you started getting all of those wildly slapsticky comedies in the 90s, right? What was the Charlie Sheen thing? Hot Hot Shots. Shots. Right. That probably gets made because this got made. Directly because of this. And even the movie movies in the 2000s, basically, most of them were terrible. I think maybe one of the Zuckers, maybe David was involved in some of those. He also directed some of the scary movie movies, also probably influenced by this and, of course, Scream. But yeah, you might be right. Airplane was so long before that maybe that never really influences those other things we just talked about. And Hot Shots is pretty funny as well, even the second one. That's my interpretation of it. Take it for what it's worth. But, but Airplane and this also have pretty good stories. Yes, they do. Considering they're not really made for that reason. And one of the actors we haven't talked about yet is Ricardo Montalban. Mm-hmm. Mr. Plays... Suave. <laughs> yeah. His toupee in this is just outrageous. It's so 80s. But I do love me some Khan. I love me some Ricardo Montalban. Khan! <laughs> But he does. About Ricardo Montalban. There's two things about this movie, though, with him. One, he never uttered the words real Corinthian leather, which was really disappointing for a slapstick movie. And two, he has the same ability that Leslie Nielsen has and the other actor. George Kennedy. Like George Kennedy, like Leslie Nielsen, Ricardo can deliver ridiculous lines, deal with ridiculous situations, and play it straight. Consider the scene after... Drebin is in his office where he spears the lionfish with the pen and stuff. The consequence of that is a subsequent scene where Ricardo Montalban's in his office looking at like a speared lionfish on a priceless... Wreck my pen and pen. my fish. And he's just looking at it weirdly. And then the other villain guy comes in. He's like, everything's fine. Let's yeah. talk about our dastardly plan. And mm. it could have been a James Bond movie at that point. The way they played it, it was perfectly straight. And I think this movie fails so utterly if any one of those actors, those three actors in particular... Wink at the camera? Yeah. I know Leslie Nielsen has his moments where he's goofy, where he's cross-eyed, and that's fine, too. Not that much, though. Not that much. That pillow scene, if he's not playing it perfectly straight, holding the pillow to his face, flailing about like his life is in danger, even though he could just let go of the pillow, he's Mm -hmm. fine. But if he drops it and then he goes, or something, then it falls apart. But he plays it perfectly straight. So that's the whole key to that gag and so many other gags in this movie. Bev always says comedy is commitment. Yes. And clearly they all committed to this. Even Priscilla Presley. She'd been on Dallas before this. And I think I read that she quit to do this. Really? And then George Kennedy was on Dallas too. I assumed at the same time, but he was on later after her. There are the connections in this movie, I guess, as well. But that's a big one with that show, which was such a huge thing in the 80s. Talk about Relic of the 80s. But one thing about it I really do believe with the commitment thing is they committed to each other, seeming like they were in love with each other. I wouldn't have minded seeing them do a serious love story together. I know that sounds crazy. There's about 20 years between them. He was 62 during filming. She was 42. Still looking beautiful, though, of course. And she, of course, helps the score factor in this film. (laughs) The romance scenes are, of course, so ridiculous that it's hard to be turned on by them. But their love story, I think, is pretty believable. At the end, when everyone's... Cr- I wasn't in any way emotional. You're not really supposed to be. But everyone that's crying, that's watching him try to talk her down from shooting him because she's now been programmed. I don't know why exactly. <laughs> why <laughs> this how? little device controls people like that? Yeah. Well, because the marching band after... What is Ricardo Montalban's name? Vincent Ludwig falls to his death. And then he's still got the little device that programmed Reggie Jackson to kill the queen. And now, for some reason, Jane's being programmed by the same button. Okay. I don't know why. <laughs> But that scene when he has to talk her down and everyone's crying about it, it didn't make me emotional, but I cared more than I would have thought. 
I agree with you that Priscilla Presley does a fine job playing off of them, and the commitment to that, making that relationship feel like something in a satirical comedy is commendable. I don't know if I cared about the relationship as much as it sounds like you did. They had a lot of fun with it, clearly, the two actors. The romance montage? The romance montage is a lot of fun. Loving Platoon more than anyone else ever has before, (laughs) laughing their asses off at it. (laughs) And as much as anything else, those particular sequences in the montage get more and more ridiculous as they go through. You know, platoon, bullfight, all of that kind of stuff. But the thing that makes it work is at the end of it, when Leslie Nielsen's character says something like, I'm so happy I met you yesterday. This has been the best 24 hours of my life. <laughs> and it just looks like they've done three months worth of stuff. Right. right? There was one scene that confused me with this movie, though. It is messing with my recollection of the way the movie plays out. Okay. The reason it comes to mind is because it directly involves Priscilla Presley and Leslie Nielsen, right? Specifically, after he's coming back home, what I think is another great sequence of Frank Drebin backflipping his way around the condo that he's in, right? Just room to room, and then finds her in the kitchen. No question about how she knows where he lives, how she got into his place, but she's boiling a roast, which Mm -hmm. I also thought was a cute gag. (laughs) And then they have the back and forth, right? And some of the double entendre gags, and she says something to the effect of, I'm also good in other rooms in the house. We're all supposed to think, okay, well, she's good in the bedroom then, right? Mm -hmm. That's what they're getting at. I remember it cutting to her coming out of the bathroom or something with a bunch of plumbing supplies, having just fixed the toilet or something. I would swear up and down that that gag was something that was in this movie. Okay, two possibilities. One is it could be one of the sequels. Maybe. I think they're both. Well, I know he's in the sequels. I think she's in both the sequels as well. I think she is too. The other thing is it could be a deleted scene they put into a television print. Because this movie is PG-13 or PG. There's no swearing in it. They didn't have to cut it. They would have had to add to it to fit a two-hour running time, though, because it's only an hour and 25 minutes long, and maybe that's what it is. A deleted scene that's probably on the DVD that they add into the TV print. Usually movies have scenes cut out to fit to time or content because it's objectionable for primetime, but not this one, I guess. That is probably what it is. I would think that, okay, maybe I'm remembering one of the sequels, too, except that that line that I'm good in other rooms in the house, too, plays so perfectly into that next sequence I remember following. It It had to have been in this movie, but maybe you're right. Maybe it was one of those gags that didn't make the theatrical cut, but they added in for time in a TV release. And yeah, they certainly didn't need to cut out the love scene in this movie, either. Full body rubbers Mm -hmm. is as chaste as it comes. Also pretty timely, though, in the age of AIDS. I remember watching this movie and think that was a funny gag at the time. While wearing a full body condom. Of course. At seven. (laughs) At seven, yeah. (laughs) Knowing what I know as an adult looking back about that period of time with HIV and AIDS and stuff. So what is their joke here? Is it that people who are practicing safe sex in the late 80s are overly cautious? I could see that may have been because I could see a lot of people saying, I'm straight, I'm not going to get AIDS. Especially when this movie's made in 87, coming out in 88. Was it 87? No, it was early 88, right. Because they had to shoot before Dodger Stadium would be needed for the Dodgers to play there. So they finished filming in April. I think they probably started filming at Dodger Stadium in February, March, and then the other stuff was later on. But they had to get out of there, the stadium, before the Dodgers came in. So it was 88. But still, that was only... I was think the AIDS crisis started in 82 or 83. I don't know if I'm right about that. Before five years in, when everyone... Not everyone, but so many people thought, oh, it's a gay thing. That could be what it was. They may have been a little homophobic in this. They didn't know what was going to happen. And the commentary, I think, the Zazzes talk about how, yeah, this guy, so let's talk about him, OJ. Who would know this would age badly because of the things that he did later on? And you know what? To backtrack to why this wasn't on the comedies list, maybe they thought, well, people don't laugh as much because OJ's in it. Not that much. He's but he's not. one of the opening sequences. Well, not the opening. That, of course, is Drebin in Beirut beating up all the bad guy world leaders. But yeah. then OJ's the next scene and has a decent amount of screen time in this. And maybe that's what the problem is, is, well, if OJ's in it, we can't honor it on the AFI lists. You might be right. I'm a guy that has openly said I can't watch certain actors anymore. So how is this them. then? 
this actually didn't bother me as much. Strangely. You know why? Because he takes an absolute poop pounding, <laughs> poop kicking. Maybe, maybe that's why. Which was a legitimately funny physical comedy sequence, yeah. I thought. He's very slowly bouncing into the various traps and cake and all that kind of stuff after getting shot. He's a funny actor, actually. This is a thing where I'm definitely remembering the sequels because I think he has more of a presence in certainly the second one, if not the third. And yeah, he's in that opening montage where he gets the ever-loving snot beaten out of him. And then there's, I guess, the two scenes in the hospital that follow that are mostly Frank-centric scenes, right? They're Leslie Nielsen. Frank hurts him unintentionally. Yeah, which is also great. It is his partner that's in the hospital bed, after all. And then, of course, the movie just ends with, Nordberg, you're going to be okay. And then, whoa, off the the second (laughs) I know that was in the trailer, and it's the very last shot of the whole film. He flies into the air. I remember the scene you were talking about earlier between Leslie Nielsen and Priscilla Presley being the capping scene, which I guess it kind of is, but I didn't remember that Nordberg was the last character to pop in and be like, I'm also okay, and then it ends there. There was only one sequence in this movie that really twigged something for me on that front, and... It was his wife mourning him, (laughs) rather than the other way around? Kind of, (laughs) except that that actress, it looked like she was having the hardest time keeping a straight face. It looked like she was on the verge of laughing constantly, and every time it looked like she was about to lose it laughing, she'd fake a sob or something to cover (laughs) it up. It's fine, she did a fine job. But there was a line in there when they're in the hospital with her that she says something like, Nordberg would never touch a hair on a woman's head or something like that. Allison watched about the first half of this movie with me, and then she's like, I can't take this anymore, and I'm leaving. (laughs) I was enjoying it, but okay. But at that point in the movie, I turned to her and I said, that line in particular has not aged well, Mm -hmm. knowing what we know now, right? But aside from that, it doesn't ruin the movie for me because he doesn't carry it, right? It's not like a Kevin Spacey vehicle, like House of Cards I could never watch because the majority of that series is him. I could probably watch The Usual Suspects, even, because that's more of an ensemble piece, even if he's really the lead character. But those movies that feature him could never watch. And the same is true of a few other select actors out there now. This didn't bother me as much. Did it you? No, because I said before, I can get past that, I think. Especially, as I've said, I think twice already, the guy gets his... (laughs) He kind of does, yeah. handed to him. (laughs) He is pretty funny, at least. He started acting back in the 70s. He was in The Towering Inferno. Bev and I covered The Poseidon Adventure late last year. That was the next movie that Irwin Allen made, the disaster movies he was known for. And that was nominated for all kinds of Oscars. I think it was even a bigger hit than Poseidon Adventure was, or somewhere in that list anyway. And I think O.J.'s got a pretty big role in that. He saves a cat or something like that, which has become the cliche, right? Save the cat makes you a hero. He was known for the football before that. Then he was the commercial guy. And then he did some other things. Yeah, We all know what they are. I said earlier, one of the biggest laughs I get of this movie is Leslie Nielsen's emotional speech at the podium at the airport when they're not here for him. Mm. There's no particular reason for this because it's not, I guess, particularly funny, but it kills me every time I see it. He's trying to get the information from Nordberg in the hospital the first time he's in the hospital. I love you. I love you too, man. Boat. Yeah, we'll go sailing just like last summer kind of thing. No, drugs. Nurse, give him the drugs. Although when the nurse... Heroin! Yeah, the nurse comes in and stabs Nordberg. (laughs) Did you notice that the plunger is already fully compressed into the syringe even before it goes into his arm? But then, yeah, he whispers, no, heroin. You're going to have to give me a few days on that one. (laughs) That's cute. I like it. That was a big thing in the 80s, late 80s especially, with, I guess, cop movies, Lethal Weapon. It was all about heroin. All about heroin, yeah. that was a year before this. So you've got a real story here just making it funny. He got left by Victoria. He could have been more sorrowful than he is. Well, he is playing it straight. But, of course, it's funny the way they play it off. Everywhere I look, it reminds me of her. And you see these <laughs> things that look like giant boobs. <laughs> the two storage silos yeah. or whatever. That, right. yeah, that was a good line. Yeah. We never even see Victoria. 
but we hear about her plenty in the first little bit. So I guess he's smarting when he meets Jane. Her entrance is pretty good, too, because it's played off the double indemnity thing. Yes. When she shows up at the top of the stairs, but then she stumbles. I thought we saw her fall down the stairs, but we don't. You just but you of, hear it. You hear it, yeah. Exactly. So that's a pretty good start, and they have heat right away. I have hammered on about how important the straight man role is in this and those three actors that really do that well. But the physical comedy is the other element of this that I think has to work well for the whole movie to work. And surprisingly, Leslie Nielsen, for a guy in his 60s at this point, he pulls off the physical humor he has to pull off. Yeah. Where there's the clear and obvious stunt doubles, like the backflipping scene, like the breakdancing umpire scene. Yeah. This guy is 60 pounds lighter than Leslie Nielsen. I think that jarring disparity between a stunt double and actor plays for the humor here because yeah. it makes me laugh. I don't know if it's intended that way. I think it's supposed to be. I always think one of the best examples of this is in Anchorman. Jack Black's cameo when he kicks <laughs> Will Ferrell's dog over the bridge. Yeah, I think he picks up an actual dog. He does. But when they cut to a wider shot and he kicks something, it's clearly not yeah, it's a, a dog. Animal, In yeah. no way is it a dog. Probably because they know people will be bothered by that. And it's funnier because you don't see him kick the dog, the real dog. Baxter! Right. So that's probably the same kind of thing here. You're going for silly comedy. Make it be absolutely absurd. When yeah. Jane's being pulled up on the stairs by Ludwig at the end, Frank! Frank! First, he does pull Priscilla Presley up, and then they cut wide, and he's got such an obvious dummy. Yeah. He's whipping around as well. <laughs> he's not that strong to carry up that easily. But that's the joke. Scenes like Priscilla Presley's character falling down the stairs when she's trying to be sultry and seductive, if it's not quasi-believable but in a very silly way, then it comes off either as dumb or it comes off as, oh, that was gruesome and horrific. Like, is she okay? Mm -hmm. But they found the balance in this movie more often than not, I think, between those two things. So it comes off as silly. You're not worried about them being hurt, but it plays well enough that you buy that it just happened for the character, you know? Yeah. And the fact that Leslie Nielsen takes no notice whatsoever of her just tumbling down the stairs. Mm -hmm. That's the other element. Well, don't right? they show him going, don't, 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 his face or his head bobbing with her? Yeah, but there's no, oh my God, are you okay? And not concern. No, no <laughs> concern. She pops up and she's fine and they just continue that. He's like, not concerned when Ed gets hit by the dart either. And like, <laughs> why? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, there's so many instances of death and destruction that everyone around it is oblivious to it. Sometimes they play for humor. Sometimes it's just going on in the background. One example of that is Drebin's inability to ever park a car or drive because mm -hmm. he's just constantly plowing into everything all the time. Mm -hmm. Nobody comments on the injury or the death and destruction the going on. The property damage. Yeah. Except, I guess, when he puts his own car into drive with the airbag and then doesn't recognize his own car as it almost runs him over and then starts shooting mm -hmm. wildly at it. <laughs> and answer me this. Do you think this is what the movie is trying to convey? He fires at it. He says, did anyone get the plates? And then he gets a look on his face. Is that realization setting so. in that? Oh, that was me. Yeah, that was me. Okay. Because I was never sure if that's what they were going for there. As he says, uh, take some witness statements and then he goes inside. Because he doesn't dwell on it and has a look on his face that says, oh no, I won't admit to it, but I screwed up just now. <laughs> He okay. rarely knows he screwed up. Exactly. But in that moment, I think he did. But because he almost never realizes his own screw-ups throughout the entire movie, I wasn't sure if they were playing on that or not. So, of course, the main focus of the movie is the whole idea of killing the Queen. Mm -hmm. They've got this, as you say, James Bond-esque plot, and the Queen, for some reason, is going to an Angels-Mariners game in California. <laughs> Back when they were known as, I think, the California Angels. They've changed yes. so many times. That was California Angels at that point. Reggie Jackson had retired before this season started. Yep. He played right. with the Angels and the A's and the Yankees and the Orioles, and I think I've got all the teams he played for. I think the Angels were the last team. He o met Oakland was the last team. Was it Oakland? He went back to Oakland for a year. When he was a coach with the A's, he actually met the real queen, apparently. I was reading Did that he really? Yeah. 
I don't know if she knew anything about this movie. Of course, it's an actress playing her because the queen was busy. Yeah. <laughs> she had scheduling conflicts. <laughs> but Reggie, playing himself in this movie, meets the actual person several years later. But he retired for real. You never see him in the game until he's yeah. activated by Ludwig's button. I did not remember his actual appearance in this movie. Legendary athletes in this and OJ. Yeah, and of course, some very well-known commentators... In, right, yeah. In the seven-man The Dix and Bergen Vital and yeah. Tim McCarver, Joyce Brothers. Joyce Brothers. <laughs> I'd forgotten that he was in this movie. So as we're watching the baseball action such as it is in this movie, I'm like, okay, they don't have any real athletes. The lead-off better for the Mariners was a real player. I was read. he really? John Stone, I think is his name. Uh, not recognized. No, I don't know him either. Certainly not. I think he had played up until a few years before that. Right. And Reggie, who doesn't really play in the game. We don't see him at all until he comes out of the bottom of the pileup looking to murder the queen. And then mm. as soon as he pops up, I'm like, hey, Reggie, we got an actual player here. That's cool. We never understand why the queen is visiting necessarily or going to the game. Fine, whatever. Wave a hand over it and move on. But the actual, I can program somebody to be an assassin at will and nobody can know who it is because James Bond. they don't know who it is either until it happens. So I like the selection of the player that they got to do it. Her security really needs to step up their game, though, because he almost does kill her. Yeah. He gets very close, and they don't react at all. There are some shots. It's the local police that save the day. It really should be her security team. Do we get any shots of her security at all? Maybe not. Prior to the game, when the queen is being introduced, and Drebin has that famous jumping on the queen, because he thinks Maltabon's going to shoot her with the commemorative musket Mm -hmm. that he's gifting her. (laughs) Clearly, there was no security to speak of there, because he just bulls in and tackles the queen with ease. Well, he's still a cop, so they wouldn't be trying to stop him from doing anything. He's not doing anything wrong until he, he actually does jump on her. I like the bit, by the way, when they show all the newspapers. It isn't just when he landed on top of her and looks like yeah. he's doing something to her. But at one point, they're doggy style on that same table. <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't just end at that moment. That's a joke you have to project back and realize there yeah. is more happening there, which is probably why the mayor, Nancy Marchand, who is Tony Soprano's mother and The Sopranos, Livia Soprano, she won a bunch of Emmys mm-hmm. for some show she was on what was that again? Lou Grant. Oh, I She had a really long career, even though she's obviously best known for Sopranos, but she is the mayor in this film. And she fires him, probably for reasons we don't see, except in those pictures. Because <laughs> just landing on the Queen would be bad, and he'd probably get fired for that. But he did a lot more than that. Part of the genius of this is the clear evidence that Drebin is utterly incompetent in everything he does. And yet, for some reason, Ed and everybody around him... Have such faith in him? Have such faith in him. <laughs> To the degree that after getting fired, which is another cute scene, I think, he's in the station, clearing out his desk, all these commendations, these awards, they mean nothing. And somebody, I think it's Big Al in the background, goes, Frank, that's not your desk. <laughs> Just since he's trash. that. Okay. You missed that? Yeah, he's so clueless that he doesn't realize that these aren't even his commendation. That was immediately after the whole, oh, this is the evidence from that guy a few years ago. Oh, okay. Clearly deserved to be fired many times over. Mm-hmm. I guess it has to happen that way in order for subsequent scenes to make any sense, right? He kind of goes rogue, yeah. and he wouldn't have to do that. It's probably also an homage to Dirty Harry and those kinds of films. Oh, sure. That I think it was sense. Roger Ebert that said that Dirty Harry solved every case while being suspended. <laughs> it's true. His record on the job is pathetic. Never actually a cop when he yeah. solves the case. But his vigilante record is through the roof. So baby. he's Batman. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. And Drebin in this movie is also Batman. Given the number of gadgets he has at his disposal and Mm. costume changes he makes, he may as well be a superhero, right? So there are two reasons why I wanted to do this movie. Of course, the 35 years thing. You know, I like to do the fives and the zeros and anniversaries and such. And also, lately, last year now, 
with Youngblood two weeks ago. We've been covering some not-so-awesome movies lately, but I knew we'd have fun with this one, watching it and talking about it. But a big reason to do it is the Enrico Palazzo! <laughs> homage to my cousin. He loved that moment. I know he talked about it a lot when we were younger. So I remembered that and thought, I've got to honor Jason by mentioning the Enrico Palazzo thing. The guy at the end, when he says, hey, it's Enrico Palazzo, and he takes off his mask. Why he'd recognize him from that long ago, <laughs> probably three hours earlier. But he looks nothing like the real guy, of course. That guy is also huge. He's yeah. a very big, overweight guy. But he gets to be the badly mangling anthem singer, yep. Enrico Palazzo. But then he's the home plate umpire. And my cousin also loved that first moment when it's, strike? <laughs> and everybody yeah! just moments. As they point out online, obviously, if the umpire says nothing, it's considered a ball. But I think the logic is, because even the batter looks back, is that was obviously right down the middle, dude. By the way, quick little note, still haunted by the fact the only time I walked anybody in our softball league last season, 2022, the only one the entire season, was a pitch that was right down the middle of the plate when the guy said, ball four. The umpire we don't like that did that game in the playoffs, the semifinals. How is that a ball? I couldn't throw a more perfect strike down the middle of the plate in my life. This is a traumatic watch for you then, watching him. It is now, looking back. Intentionally mangling some of the calls. But Jason loved that moment too, so I also do. It's very funny. And the way the crowd reacts, then he starts hot-dogging so much. The ball's not even to the plate yet on strike three of that guy. It's probably still six feet away. Strike three! (laughs) When I was watching that particular umpiring sequence... I could only think of you because, of course, you've done umpiring too. And we've talked about some umpires in the majors, and some of them are so quiet that you're not really sure what call they've made. Some of them have really emphatic strikes. Mm -hmm. So I really like the choreography of this, how much fun Leslie Nielsen or a stunt double are having. Like At first, with the emphasis on the strikes after he realizes that the crowd loves it, I didn't think about the trauma you would have as a pitcher, mm. but I was wondering about... The... I'll let that go one day. Did you have inspiration, though, for any future umpire you may decide to do down the line? Well, I don't know about that, but I do know that nobody ever questions when I do a game what the out call situation is, and especially the balls and strike calls. That's fair. But Did do you... I have inspiration to be this ridiculous? No, not really. <laughs> not even to do some stretching, limbering up beforehand to nail some splits? Do the splits? I can't get close to doing the splits. 49 <laughs> when we start playing this year. No way. <laughs> We always ask the question, how is the sport portrayed? Of course, it's terrible. It's ridiculous. It's silly. The one thing I wish they hadn't done in all of the montage of silliness, I think it happened after Ed tells him, don't let them get the third out or whatever. Yeah, then he's got to stall. Yeah. And that's what leads to the umpires run down, bumping chest. He throws out the umpires. That's fun. You're out of here. But there's a pop-up at one point behind home plate. Mm -hmm. I think he throws balls in the air and the catcher drops it. And then he says, fair ball. That was the bridge too far in that sequence for me because it doesn't matter what happens. The ball was just clearly out of play. It's impossible for it to be fair. All the other stupidity that's going on is ridiculous, but if you want to stretch the rules to the extreme, I guess you could consider a lot of it possible. Well, there's a moment where a guy hits a home run and you see, I think, three guys cross second base. It's not possible. (laughs) One guy would from first, if it's a grand slam. The batter would, but the guy at second was already off the base, and the guy at third is nowhere near the base. It's supposed to be a joke there. The thing about the pop-up, I bet, that could have been that they had to jam together some scenes, and maybe the guy was in fair territory in a different scene, maybe, and they had to condense it for some reason. Talking about various points in this movie where there's gruesome injuries that should be occurring and either don't or people are just totally oblivious to them. They play that greatest clips sequence, <laughs> like the center fielder going back for the catch and his head snaps off at the wall. And they, How about that? How about that? <laughs> Mel Allen. Okay. It's so stupid, but it still made me giggle. I Clearly also a fake, well, the guy running, but then as they cut, 
Of course, it can't be a real person, but it looks nothing like. <laughs> it a real looks like person. a mannequin. Yeah, <laughs> it's very obviously fake. Mm-hmm. I also liked in that same montage the runner going to second base. A tiger comes out of nowhere and yeah, attacks him. Right. But the guy is clearly not a baseball player and instead some sort of professional animal handler. Yeah, it's the animal handler. Because he's, yeah, he's yeah. running low and kind of yeah. slow. Like, is the tiger going to come now? Is the tiger going to come? Oh, here it comes. And yeah. now I have to like get down. It's his friend, the tiger. He's yeah. probably worked with for 10 years. Exactly. He can't be a baseball player. <laughs> yeah. And of course, the car drives over a guy, too. So there's some good gags there. But they shoot it like it's real footage. They do. Yeah. It takes you a second to realize, okay, well, a car's not going to be on the field, of course, and certainly run somebody over. They haven't The allowed. tigers are rarely on the field. Sometimes. <laughs> Probably the Detroit Tigers use them. Not since the rule changes of 1967 and Tigers, <laughs> live Tigers have been allowed on the field of play during a game. So, Yeah, and then some of those umpires, by the way, are real umpires. I think Joe West, who just oh, recently retired. West? I believe it's him, yeah. Okay. I think it's the longest serving umpire of all time and not everyone's favorite umpire. By the way, at the end, so we're still at the baseball game, but the game is over. Well, it's still the brawl. I guess the game's not over. They're having that brawl inside. And the manager for the Angels, incidentally, is Lawrence Tierney from Us of Our Dogs. My way or the highway. Yeah, What's it going to be, Mr. Pink? He's the manager for the Angels. So four years before he did Reservoir Dogs, he'd been known in the 40s, maybe even the 30s, but certainly the 40s in film noir, really? Lawrence Tierney. You hear him, he doesn't sound quite the same, probably because of smoking and just age, sure. but it's similar enough. He was an intimidating dude. So he's a fairly big name in that tiny little role. So yeah, they're having the brawl inside, but the emotional moment, well, first of all, it's a scary moment. Not scary, really, but if it was real, <laughs> it would be scary that... Ludwig has Jane with a machine gun at her head, an Uzi at her head. Yeah, why an Uzi of all things? <laughs> Such a terrible choice really, of a gun. Where do you have that this whole time? <laughs> can't stash it. Can't control yeah. an Uzi. It's like a, a derringer, maybe. Yeah. But when he lands on the ground, all those things run him over. One of them is a steamroller. Yes. This was the year of steamroller deaths. And I've now covered all three movies from 1988. A Fish Called Wanda. Kevin Klein gets it. Yep. Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yep. And actually, in all three cases, it's the villain, too. In Roger Rabbit, it's a sort of spoiler alert, but these movies are 35 years old. In Roger Rabbit, it's, what's his name? Doom, the Christopher Lloyd character. Yep. And now here with Vincent Ludwig, Mercado Montalban. And somehow, out of all three of those movies, the one that was the most gruesome steamroller death was Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah, it's true. I love Who Framed Roger Rabbit in retrospect, but when I saw that, I was seven years old. I saw it in the theater. It must have been scary. That character, the Christopher Lloyd character, scared the bejesus out of me when it was first unveiled. He's got the crazy mm. wild eyes. Yeah. And then when he gets run over, that and like the dropping the boot into the acid and the screaming, that steamroller death was wild. At least in this movie, by the time that happens... He was already he's dead. He's already well gone. He's already dead. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Although that's a ridiculous and silly death sequence for Ricardo Montalban, but the capper for that is, wasn't it Ed or something that said, that's the way my dad died or something like that? It gets and Trevor doesn't comment? Okay. Which part? All of it, I guess. All of it. Yeah. Nobody says that, but they should have. Well, David Zucker is the one who directed. The other two were producers and writers, along with Pat Proft, and they based it on the Police Squad TV show, so that's why it's From the Files of the Police Squad is the subtitle of this. That only had six episodes, though, and it was 1982, so they went from Airplane to that, I think they did Top Secret, which is a lot of people's favorites from these guys. I like it as well. Haven't seen it in a long time. That's quite a run of zany comedy for them. And Zucker, by the way, also directed Basketball, which we covered a few years ago. We didn't love that movie, but I'm guessing he's homaging some of the things he did in this. And one of them would be having all the broadcasters. And that was one of my favorite parts of Basketball, because I did like, who was again, Costas and Al Michaels together. Two of the greatest sports broadcasters I've ever seen, especially doing baseball, particularly. They're not in this one. It's other people. But that was probably an homage from this movie, having this giant booth and having some of the Joyce Brothers be part of it. Because what's she got to do with this? I think at some point they co-directed these movies, but he's one Mm -hmm. of the people that directed Airplane, Top Secret, and then some of the scary movies. So he's definitely got his 
mark in the ridiculous comedy genre. But I don't like any of those movies as much as Naked Gun and Airplane. Not even close. For me, this is the pinnacle of this type of movie. The type of thing that is homaging other movies or at least homaging genres without directly parodying it. And I draw that distinction because in another 10 or 15 years, you start getting the scary movies of the world and equivalent satires that are directly satiring another movie, right? Right. And some of those are hilarious, and I don't want to compare... The first scary movie is pretty good. Yeah, and I'm not just talking about that franchise, but that was a whole type of movie that was huge for about 10 or 15 years. There's, I think, a difference between that kind of direct parody and this kind of genre homage satire. So for me, this is about as good as it got in the late 80s and the 90s. I'm a fan of the sequels, too, if memory serves. Part of what I like about this movie, aside from the things that I've already touched on, is some of the things I really enjoyed about The Simpsons, and it's kind of the stuff that you referred to way early on in this episode, double entendre. Yes. Some of, well, it's more of the double joke, I call it. So it's okay. funny, but then it's funny again. Yes, okay, that's a better way of putting it. There's so many times The Simpsons did it, I can't think of a good example right now. Oh, man, I wish I had some examples at hand now from The Simpsons, but there's so many times re-watching some of those episodes from the early 90s of The Simpsons where, as an adult, I'm like, oh, I didn't catch that reference as a kid. Sure. Yeah. And I think that's true of The Naked Gun, right. because... Things like the newspaper clipping, for instance. I said when I was a kid, I got the double entendre of Nice Beaver, Thanks for this kind of stuff. I got all that, multiple gags. But I didn't catch the changing of positions, implying that the thing with the queen had been going on longer than we saw <laughs> and it appeared in the newspaper clipping later. That kind of stuff is really clever. And so this is a movie that's utterly silly. But if you pay enough attention... There are a bunch of little gags in yeah. there that stick out. A lot of comedies, and certainly this kind of comedy, doesn't usually age well from the standpoint of just comedy because you know the gag is coming and isn't as funny. But when you look for deeper details, I think Airplane's got a lot of this too, then you could find other jokes beyond those. And if you could still laugh at the pillow on the face or the many other things in this and in Airplane, top secret, that says everything. But being able to find those extra moments makes it even more fun talking about it helps too because you can really analyze this yeah. stuff but even something like you mentioned earlier a gag like the it's on rico palazzo on its face you could say okay that's funny because drebin never gets the credit even when he did something good right kind of by accident because <laughs> he ricocheted shots off a bunch of things but he doesn't get the credit people think it's the singer but then if you think deeper okay well this is a guy that was just watching a baseball game for a couple hours only saw drebin from a distance singing the national anthem badly badly wasn't even the real enrico palazzo so if he's an enrico palazzo fan in the stands it wouldn't make sense that he recognized frank <laughs> so you can go down the rabbit hole of analyzing this joke and it kind of only gets funnier i think yeah. if you realize there's these layers to it right so yeah this is one of those rare examples of a totally ridiculous movie that actually benefits from deep analysis yeah, sometimes okay. maybe you're right and from rewatches yeah. from rewatches i yeah. have to watch airplane again i think and maybe even top secret again soon talking about this time so i would give it an eight out of ten for hitting so many comedy home runs pun intended but i would give it two to ten as a sports movie <laughs> maybe even less <laughs> but eight out of ten i think is a pretty fair score because it achieves everything it can maybe i should give it a ten but i'll give it an eight yeah i think Eight is a good score for this because it does have a few moments where I think even in the late 80s, if you were an adult watching it, certainly and not a seven-year-old kid like I was the first time I saw it, you'd probably look at it and go, that was maybe not in good taste or you probably shouldn't have done that or that was dumb. But by and large, this was, like I said earlier, I think a genre-defining movie that was carried out really well and has these little pockets of deep, intelligent humor in it that are surprising and fun to find sometimes. So It is PG-13, by the way, but I don't remember there being any language. I don't think they really? even used one of their... Well, usually can do one F-bomb yeah. in a movie with the PG-13 rating. I don't think they even used any. So that's pretty good, too, that they got away with these kinds of gags in a way that fits the PG-13 mold. 
it made me yearn a little bit for the era in which you could go back and watch a movie in 90 minutes and have fun with it. Because it feels like in 2023 now, mm-hmm. every movie feels like it has to be a minimum of two hours oh, long. God, yeah. And it doesn't even matter if it's a comedy. And comedies are more rare than they've ever been, I think. Everyone's going for those either spectacle movies or deep award-winning dramas. Mm-hmm. But everything is so long and you have to have so much commitment to sit down and be with the movie for so long that it was really refreshing to sit down for 90 minutes and watch a silly movie, have fun with it. Okay, that was cool. I feel like I had a good time for 90 Mm. minutes. Didn't feel drained watching the movie for once. A big mantra for me in podcasting is respect people's time. And this movie did. So let's respect their time by cutting this one off here, I think, at this point. So in two weeks, we'll be as close to the Super Bowl as we'll get without going over. So let's talk about football. And we'll finally cover the remake of perhaps the best regarded football movie ever. We didn't love the original Longest Yard as much as most people do, but we'll see how we feel about the Adam Sandler remake of The Longest Yard on February 2nd. And the Super Bowl, by the way, is February 12th, so we'll be posting an episode something like four days later. That's why we do it on February 2nd. We're on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at Scoring at Movies. This podcast is available in all the podcast places, and we've done 121 episodes. Look for the other ones. We've talked about some of them and promoted them in this place, including the original Longest Yard. That's right. This was our hill, and these were our beans. <laughs> That's a good line, too, at the what? end, right? I don't remember that. It doesn't amount to a hill of beans, but this was our hill, <laughs> and these were our beans. <laughs> also, to end this podcast best, I won't even use the Sam Elliott voice. I'll just say, how about that? <laughs> <laughs>